So Josh Cutler I met when I was first starting to do this Teenage Diaries series, and I was just in a high school kind of interviewing a bunch of, of uh, folks trying to figure out who I might do a story on, and the principal of the high school said, um, do you want to meet a kid who has Tourette syndrome? I was like, well, yes, that could be a good story. So I met Josh, and I kind of thought in the beginning of doing this series that I'd be able to tell right away who was going to be a good diarist and who wasn't, and Josh was kind of a nightmare from, from the start. Um, mostly just in terms of he wasn't revealing in any sort of way incredibly defensive and just kind of you know hard to work for and work with. Um, but I worked with him for about a year, and it was I would say it's probably one of the hardest diaries that I've done, but it's you know it's ended up being my favorite. And I thought I would just um, let me play the whole thing if you guys are okay with that, and then we'll kind of talk about it afterwards, and I'll play some of the outtake, outtakes that I've kind of found over the last week. So I figure also, before we play the whole thing, um, maybe we'd turn off the lights, because these are maybe the worst illustration of fluorescent lighting in the history of man. And so maybe if we've got an 11-minute downtime, we can go dark. And Josh also, before, before we actually play this piece, one of the things that I like about Josh's story, ooh, <laughs> is... Um, you know, he has Tourette syndrome, which, if you don't know, is a brain disorder that causes um, verbal tics and physical and verbal tics. So sometimes you can't even control what you say. And to me, that's sort of a metaphor for the diaries, for this kind of way of working uh, to begin with, because you're getting all this tape. I worked with Josh for about a, the course of a year, and I'm getting tape every week or so, and you're kind of mining through, you know, 40 hours of tape over the course of however long. You're kind of mining for gold. You're like going through, you know, all this like junk, 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 and then these kind of little nuggets come out, and you never know what's going to happen. As opposed to kind of more traditional reporting, you're sometimes you're looking for something and you get surprises, but you're kind of going in with an idea. And it's kind of nice to be able to receive all this tape every week. Josh sends me tape, and you just kind of put it in, and you start transcribing, and then just these kind of, you never know what you're going to get. And that's sort of the way it works for him in real life with Tourette syndrome too. So. Let's, uh, I'll play the story and we can talk more after that. I'm getting ready for school right now. How's the volume? Just got out of the shower and got dressed. And now I'm getting ready to heat up my usual TV dinner that I have for breakfast. I think I'll have a spaghetti bolognese. Oh, let me do the introduction now. Hi, my name is Josh, and I'm 16 years old, and I live in Manhattan in New York City. Pop it in the microwave, yeah. Um, <clears throat> if you saw me on the street, you wouldn't notice anything different about me. I mean, I look just like a normal person. Except for after a while, you'd realize I'm, I don't act much like a normal person. <clears throat> I have Tourette's Syndrome. It's a neurological disorder that causes <clears throat> involuntary tics. <coughs> it feels like there's a big balloon inside my stomach. Like the balloon keeps growing bigger and bigger. Like every second extra that I, the tick stays inside, it feels like somebody blows up the balloon another, another notch. Until I let it out. <coughs> it's my radio show. Thank you. Sorry about that. That was my mom. You're not listening at the door, are you? Okay.
prank calls. I make a lot of prank calls. <clears throat> Hello? Hello? Yeah, I want to go to school. You do? Yeah, in September. Oh, you do? Yeah. Yeah, you talk to my daddy. Alright, hold on. Hold on. Hello? Hello? Hi, hi there, hi. Hi. Yeah. Um, I'm Billy's father. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was, um, but listen, um, Billy is kind of an emotionally disturbed child, so... Would we be able to cope with that? Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I can send you the material. Yes, yes. Give me your name and address and I'll mail you the information. Right, my name is Wilton. I make a lot of prank calls. Yes, yes. My mom thinks that it's because since I've experienced so much pain that I'd like to inflict it on others. It's not true at all. Yes, yes. I just do it for, because it's fun. Okay, bye. Hook, line, and sinker. I go to St. Anne's School, it's in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm in 11th grade. I've been going there since I was in first grade. What do you think about Tourette's? If somebody says Tourette's to you, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Okay, well, uh, I see that you have uncontrollable outbursts, and, uh, well, sometimes they're funny, amusing, but most of the time they're just a uh, pain in the ass, you know, because you've got to put up with you cursing and yelling and running around. That's nice. <laughs> okay, yeah, just, just say what you think. But, you know, uh, you know you're a nice guy, and... Uh, do you think it affects my relationships with other people? You don't want to do it? Yes. You do? Huh. What I've heard about it is you say whatever you think. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and everyone thinks things which they wouldn't normally say. And, for example, if I said exactly what I thought about Sophie, she'd hit me. So. I do say exactly what I think about Sophie. Josh loves Sophie. No, no, just my honey bunch. Girls are a very touchy topic with me. Not physically, but I wish. <laughs> oh. I don't know, it's because I must say, not to gloat, but I am an attractive person. I'm cute, I'm smart, I have a nice body, but a lot of the teoretic things I do seem to drive other people, including girls, away. Thanks. Sophie, you want to say something else? Yeah. Okay, she wants to Ooh. sing. I love fish because it's so delicious. I love fish because it's so delicious. Go and go fishing. Yay! Sophie. Thanks. Let's see how this came out. When I'm holding in a tick, when I'm holding it in all day in school, I just can't wait to get home so I can explode. <coughs> I mean, the guy has lots of different kinds of ticks. Sometimes I grab people and shake them around, usually just my parents, fortunately for that. Even in New York, I'd look pretty weird on the street, just going up to people and sh start shaking them around and screaming at them for no reason. I, I, it really just pisses me off sometimes, if you can say that on the radio. Because I didn't do anything to deserve it. I'm fine. I, listen, I, I'm interested in getting fit. Okay. This is a new club. Are you familiar? Are you a member of? No. 
Okay. You see, I weigh 800 pounds. You're 800, what was that? I weigh 800 pounds. You're 800 pounds? Yes. Okay. I have, I'm blobs of fat all over the place. Yeah, that's no problem. We can get rid of that. Yeah. Um, what's your name? Oh, Blorp. Excuse me? Blorp. Bl <laughs> it's not Jeff, is it? No. You can hear that over there. That's my mom playing the piano. My relationship with my mom, we get along sometimes, but she, she always tries to butt into everything. A lot of the time, kids' problems with their parents are that they don't, that the parents don't pay enough attention to them. I think my parents pay too much attention. They just won't butt out of my business. Back off. Josh? Mm. What's the one thing you would want people to know about living with Tourette that would help them understand you? I told you this already. I don't care to help people. People have to deal with their own problems. So what do you think about the way Dad and I have had to deal with you? Do you think we've done a good or a bad job? You can't say it. Just either one. What do you think? What do you feel when you think about us? You suck! Sorry. I know you try to do a good job. I don't know. I think you try too hard. What do you mean, try too hard? Like you get in my way too much. Like when you don't let me watch TV. Just let me watch TV and leave me alone. I just scratched my ass. You think it's been easy living with you? I doubt it. <laughs> Most of the time. Ah, oh, itch. You that know, was a, do you want to train. hear my deepest wish? What's your deepest wish? That you want me to be happy and to leave you alone? No. No? Surprise. What? I wish that I could just have a conversation with you like other mothers have with their teenage children. You could. I can. Yeah, you can. You fill your conversation with so much defensive stuff. That's because you always bring it up. How would you like but it if I was talking just... about the things that trouble you? You do the same thing. No, I wouldn't. Yes, you would. No, I wouldn't. Yes, you would. What do you want me to say? Say what you're feeling right now. What do you think people think about you? I'm a whack. <laughs> I'm a loony bird. That's just who I am. But that's combined with a disease that makes me more of a loony bird. So that makes me a double loony bird, and so I go over the edge. Do you think you'd be a loony bird at all if you didn't have this disease? Yeah. You, you're, you and Dad are both loony birds, so... How do you think we are loony birds? You remember all those little stories you used to make up for me? and th Those things don't leave my head, you know. Do you want what? to hear something? What? When you first got to Red, I wondered if all the funny songs I made up gave it to you. <laughs> you really thought that? Yes. You're stupid. <laughs> I said, I said to myself, oh, my God, if I hadn't made up all those silly songs, maybe he wouldn't have gotten to red. I don't think so. Ugh. People are always taught to think before they speak.
everybody has deep, dark things that they don't want people to, to know that they're thinking about. <coughs> the bottom line is sometimes I actually have to teach myself not to care. I can't care because most of the time I can't control what comes out of my mouth. I control what comes out of my ass better than what comes out of my mouth. But the last thing I want people to think is, oh, poor Josh. It's not like I have to, I'm in a wheelchair, I have snot dribbling down my chin. But I really just don't want anyone to be feeling sorry for me or, like, this is not a Sally Struthers commercial. The low battery signs on the tape recorder. So I'm gonna have to replace it pretty soon. I guess that's just about it. So, signing off for now. So um, I have uh, I have things to say about this, and I also have um, some little uh, kind of examples. To I, I had a really fun time this week going through uh, the old transcripts that I haven't looked at in you know you know five years, and kind of remembering how much bad tape there was. Um, so I brought a couple things to play, but I figured um, maybe we could do questions first. Unless you wanna. They all, I do all the editing and, and kind of mixing and all that stuff, but I do it in consultation with them, so I kind of let them know as we go along what's going to be in the piece. Um, I mean, that sort of happens all along. You know, it's actually, you might think it's just, you know, you give the tape recorder and let them go, but it's actually a very directed process all the way through. They're sending me tapes, and I'm saying, you know, do more of that, do less of that. You know, you haven't, you know, you got to do an interview with your mom, you know, whatever. Um, uh but there, we, we, we have a rule with all these stories that if there's anything that they don't want in the story, then, you know, yeah. that they tell me and, and it doesn't go in. And that's happened a couple times where they, you know, either they or the parents haven't wanted some particular fact or whatever in. So it's not really the same relationship you would have to a subject that you do in a story. It's more like a relationship maybe that you have between editor and, produ- and reporter. No, that was recorded a different time. And basically what you want to do for every story is as much as you can record things separately so that you have the flexibility to use them. And you hear his tape recorder clicks off at the end and the, the music still goes, even though you kind of have this idea that the music is there as he's talking. You know, it's a device. So that music was recorded separately. You know, at one point he did say, oh, that's my mom playing piano over there. But you could barely hear the piano when he said it. Mm-hmm. So it was able to kind of be hidden. And then he just many other times recorded his mom playing the piano close mic'd and now you know so then you're able to kind of do with it what you want. A, a non teenager over there? So that's set up. <laughs> um well we actually had this discussion before. I mean I think it 
I think the problem with these diaries, maybe not the problem, but one of the one thing about these diaries is that they're perceived as being authentic by the listeners a lot of times in a way that, you know, I mean, no no story is authentic if you're sort of, you know, I don't want to get too philosophical, but every time you turn on the microphone, you're affecting things, of course. So, um, no, I don't think these are necessarily any more authentic. I think the idea is that any time you're doing a story where you spend tons of time with the story and with the person, hopefully you're getting to something that's a little more true and real. Um, so, you know, the fact that I, you know, knew and worked with Josh for a year and actually since then, too, we did another story after that, hopefully gives me a sense of when he's, you know, talking bullshit and when he's talking, you know, when he's really being vulnerable and when he's being real and all those sorts of things. So. Ira? <laughs> Right. You know, I'd have to go back to. I probably not. I mean, probably they were from two different times. You know, the way these pieces don't have narration in the traditional in the traditional sense of there's no script, there's no writing, but obviously there is narration in terms of his diary entries serve as narration, and so that. You know that you know, now I got to talk about what I you know who I am, what my disease that that is was probably something that happened you know on his bed late at night as he's doing these kind of diary entries. Absolutely, I probably told him twenty times, and he probably did twenty versions of it. You know, there's a scene of you know he says like okay, the thing about his disease is that he can't control what he says and does. And the tape where we really hear that is where he's with his mom. Did you try to get him being like that with his friends? Because all you've got with his friends is he right. them, you don't get that kind of... Well, my, I mean, I think one of the things about this, you know, about diaries is that, I mean, one of the things that I believe is that the reason to work in this way is that sometimes you can get things that you just can't get any other way as a reporter doing a story um, in this way. And I think Josh has a good example of that because... Well, for one thing, with his ticks, as he says, you know, he, he can kind of control the ticks. As he says at school, he can kind of control it, and then it just kind of builds up like a balloon. And so around in school, he very rarely ticks verbally. You'll see little physical ticks. But, um, so, and around me, he very rarely ticks verbally. And, and when he had the microphone, it turned out he very rarely ticked in a kind of obvious way. So the way that that kind of those ticks that happen – two-thirds of the way through the piece, halfway through the piece, actually happened. What we all agreed, he and his mom and I agreed to do, is she would record at a time when he was ticking. Um, so those kind of more dramatic um, sounds come from when actually his mom picked up the tape recorder and recorded him um, when he didn't re know it. Because every time he was recording, you'd get little, like, kind of peeps and pips and stuff, but not really the more dramatic stuff. Um, let, let's, um, let's, as much as we can, let's stay with, uh, I'd like to get questions from, uh, the young folks here because this is kind of geared toward that. And especially in terms of kind of trying to think about making your own stories and how it relates to that. Um, I mean, everyone's welcome to, but I just don't want to make sure that you guys feel free to, um, answer questions, to ask questions as well. Calling, us old, <laughs> Calling you old. Um, 
But uh, I did, okay, again, I kind of had fun going through um, all the other tape, and I wanted to give you an idea of what was on the 40 or so hours of tape that didn't make it into that story. Um, there were 26 cassettes, 90 minutes each, so about 39 hours of tape. One cassette was full of uh, Josh Likes Wrestling, and it was just a cassette of wrestling on the t- television. That's all it was. Um, he did two interviews with his mom. You know, I, it wasn't until he did that that, interv- that scene with his mom, it wasn't until I got that scene that I felt like it was a, a story. I think you can kind of tell that. That's where it just kind of takes it to another level, that conversation. And he had done an interview with his mom before, and it sucked. It was very like, okay, mom, what do you think? It wasn't a conversation. It was an interview, and it just was very false and everything. So he had an interview with his mom and another one with his dad. Um, neither of those two were going to work. Um there were at least three full cassettes of uh, prank phone calls scattered out over the... I mean, once once I mistakenly responded with enthusiasm to one of those calls, it, it was over. Um, most of the diary entries came from... You hear at the end, it's like, I'm tired now, and he's kind of yawning. For some reason, with a lot of these teenage diaries that I've done, a lot of their diary entries, a lot of their good diary entries, end up happening late at night. Um... I told you about the, the ticks, that most of those dramatic tips came from actually, ironically, he wasn't recording, his mom was recording. And then what I wanted to talk a little bit about is the school scene, because Josh and I worked, you know, again, this is a very directed process. I was bugging him for months and months and months, take the tape recorder to school, take the tape recorder to school, because you have to have a scene where you're talking to your peers, to the people at school, about Tourette's and what they think of you, and that, you know, that's an important thing. And he didn't want to do it. And um, he did it a couple times, and let me, I, I was just kind of laughing going through some of these tapes. I brought a couple little quick examples. This is number three. I'll let you hear this, and I'll tell you what it is. This is Josh bringing the tape recorder to school, but not taking it out of his bag at any point. Tape recorder, microphone in the bag, walking around. At some point, he tries to talk to people. Anyway, then I got that tape back. Josh, that's not going to work. You have to take the microphone out. You know that. Um, he, uh, at one point, he said, but no one wants to talk to me. No, one's, no one wants to talk about this. They're not going to want to talk to me. And I kept trying to convince him. Once you actually ask questions, people love to talk. You know, Take out the microphone. Try it. Trust me. So this is what he got another time. This is the only little piece of tape I got back when he promised to go to school and talk to someone. You're too shy? You're, so, you're, you're too shy to talk about it? Yes, I'm too shy to talk about anything. I can't be on the radio. Okay, that's all I need. I told you, Joe. Oh, wait, wait, you missed the part. Can you rewind? you got, you got to hear the last little part. Wait, right after, that's all I need. Oh, well. No, that's uh, that's number uh, four, yeah. You're too shy. You're so you're, you're too shy to talk about it. Yes, I'm too shy to talk about anything. I can't be on the radio. Okay, that's all I need. I told you, Joe. <laughs> so, <laughs> God bless him. Um, so the way, the only way that we finally got, the way that we finally broke through in the school thing is actually his, his mom ended up, as you can imagine, his mom, mom ended up being kind of a co-producer of the piece. She advised that what I do is bribe him. 
So I promised Josh that if he actually good faith effort to do interviews and he got something back, real conversation, um, I would take him to a next game. And uh, so he pulled out the tape recorder and it was just kind of, it was, um, I mean, his parents feel that was one of the biggest days of his life. It was, he spent hours just talking to people and it was kind of like a watershed moment. It was really, and so that's sort of represented in the piece. I don't think it kind of plays that way in the piece necessarily, although he talks about how he's scared, but in his life, that was, that was kind of a, a great, a great day. Um, other questions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the great thing about using about radio for this sort of form is that it's, to a certain extent, it's pretty foolproof. If you hold the microphone close to the source, to someone's mouth, you're almost always going to get good sound. And it's amazing how much of the time, um, you know, diarists of all sorts come back, especially teenagers. Teenagers are much more than adults, as you can probably imagine, come back with good sound. There's mic handling noise. There's um, not paying attention to the fact that there's a stereo blasting around you when you're trying to, you know, there's that sort of thing. But if the microphone is close, that, I mean, that's the biggest thing. Keep the microphone close at all times possible. Wear headphones that you're aware of, you know, the problems, and you're going to get good sound. Well, you know, it's an ongoing process. In the beginning, I'll tend to spend a few days, excuse me, even as much as a week kind of training them with, you know, the equipment. But it really doesn't take more than an hour to train them with the equipment. You know, it's on automatic level control. And, um, but kind of practicing. And that's the big thing because Josh especially, but most of the people I worked with, the first, you know, week or month is, you know, you're trying to sound like Peter Jennings or whatever. You know, everyone has their own kind of model for what they're trying to sound like and they're not being themselves yet, you know, the idea that it takes a lot of practice for them to be themselves. So um, that's really it, is just kind of doing it and responding to the tapes and kind of constant um, reaction and reinforcement, you know, in terms of what they're doing. Do you have any specific um, exercise for trying to relax in order to be in the interview for a genuine? No. Um, yeah, can, oh, I'm sorry, can people not hear the questions? The question was, are there exercises for, um, to get people to relax with the microphone? There must, any, anyone have any? I don't, maybe there, is one in the back? Try not to put it right, right in your eyes. Like, Jay Allison talks about one of the things he's written about, you know, working with, you know, kind of citizen storytellers. He talks about taking the microphone and making it, you know, demystifying the microphone itself, you know. You're kind of like playing with it. You're rubbing it up against your leg. You're kind of like, you know, that sort of thing. And and certainly the idea that you never want to say, okay, now we're going to do the interview. Are you ready? Play, record, let's go. You don't want to make a big production out of it, you're already recording by the time you're sitting down. It's, you know, you're chatting, chatting, the next thing you know, you've kind of eased into the interview. Why did you choose to keep his relationship with his father out of the piece? Only because the interview he did with his dad sucked. 
Um, and he, that was the one thing he was pissed at. He, um, he has a closer relationship with his dad than he does. He has a more troubled relationship with his mom. So he's like, next piece, I want my dad in it. My dad, and actually we did a second story and his dad was in it a little bit. <laughs> Got his dad's voice in. But, yeah, uh, um, just because that conversation with his mom was just this amazing, it went on for like 20 minutes like that. I mean, it's just this incredible, that's the kind of thing where you're going through these tapes and then I heard that conversation and this is, this is a great story. JJ. Uh, the structure, uh, you know, I, I have no idea. That's the part that kills me and that I hate. Um, I don't know. I mean, you kind of, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, you're editing your tape is like sculpture and you're kind of chipping away, chipping away until something reveals itself. And it's definitely like that. But as far as structure, sometimes you, a lot of times you hear beginnings and endings and you just know whether you're, you know, this kind of story or whether you're doing, you know, just an interview for, you kind of hear a piece of tape and you feel like that's, you know, that's the way it starts or that's the way it ends. But, um, I don't know. Structure is intuitive, I think. And for me, it's hellish. Well, that's, that's, you got to get there, you know? So I think there is, there is kind of like structure in terms of you think of, you get to know the person in some ways and you, you reveal a little bit more about them. And then that's like, a, it's like a climax. It's like the action of the piece in a way. So in that way, yes, I suppose it's like traditional narrative structure. Um, I know the other, okay, I'm just thinking of like, I've got another Jay Allisonism, which is Jay talks about, um, pulling the rabbit out of the hat and you don't pull the rabbit all the way out of the hat right in the beginning. You kind of tease, you kind of show a little bit of the ears, you show a little bit more and you're kind of going slowly. So I think that's kind of a nice way to think about structure too. Have you ever bailed out of uh, diaries? Um, you know, they haven't, some of them haven't worked, but not necessarily because I've bailed out more like they've bailed out. Um, it definitely takes, you know, they, you know, you're looking for good talkers, you're looking for good stories, but really, for the diaries anyway, you're looking for people who are kind of game, who are who are willing to take the tape recorder to school and talk to your peers even though you don't want to. And Josh wasn't game, but in, in other ways he he was, to have that conversation with his mom on there. And, you know, that's the prerequisite. Um, Josh's second story, we, we did a second story with him um, that was supposed to be about uh, he was going away for the first time for the summer at this kind of college, high school, uh, this high school program, pre, pre-college program at a college, um, at Bennington College. And it was going to be, all, all of a sudden he was going to be with people he didn't know. And how was he going to explain Tourette's? How was, how was he going to talk about it? And that always makes for good tape when you get someone telling something else, telling someone else about themselves. Cause they're in effect telling it to the audience too. So, um, the story was basically how he talks, how he describes himself, essentially. But it turned into a story um, about his first kiss. <laughs> so that's kind of a nice thing about, you know, these stories can kind of take you places that you are, that you are not, um, you know, you're not trying to, to push them. Um, but Josh was game enough, again, by this time, that uh, he even the night after this first kiss, he's kind of uh, late at night, he takes out the tape recorder. I mean, the only thing better would be if he took the tape recorder along for the kiss. <laughs> But, you know, he, he got, he gets back and he's like, I'm still kind of shocked. 
and he's like, I just got back, you know. So if you've got someone who's willing to get back from their first kiss and turn on the, pick up the microphone, then, you know, that's, that's a good, actually, let's take a diversion for a second. Do you want to play the next one? I think it's track five. This is the end of that story about his first kiss. It's just one minute long. What I have here is one thing I saved from the summer. It's an envelope on which this girl, Nicole, wrote down instructions on how to kiss. To pucker lips, slowly open mouth, slowly slide tongue in, repeat steps one, two, and three. And she made that list for me because I made out with her and she said I was doing it wrong. So I guess that's the main thing I learned this summer. That piece had a different vibe. <laughs> yeah, oh, Juan Luis Guerra. Yeah, well, he, uh, what you miss in the piece is he's away at Bennington. He's like, I can't wait to get back. He loves the Latin station in New York. So he's like, he's not the most Latin guy, as you might be able to tell. But, uh, but yeah, he's like, I can't wait to, you know, I forget the numbers now. But he's like, so it's from, you know, he gets back and he turns on the station. So again, that music wasn't recorded as he's saying that, but there's a scene where he's talking about the radio and he turns it on, and I was able to get that music in the clear and use it. That's just a production device, which, you know, if you don't know, you will know. JJ, did you have something for me? You know, a certain percentage of it is so, you know, you don't even, you're not even like listening, like the tape of wrestling sound, I was able to go through that pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, a lot of it is easy, easy to junk, but, um, no, I mean, that's just, you know, as you know, as everyone who does radio know, that's just the most painful thing is cutting, is cutting your tape and cutting off the tape you, uh, you love. And, you know, as everyone will say, it's not a great piece until you've left a lot of the stuff you really, really love, um, on the floor. In the trash can of the computer, or whatever. Um, I was wondering if there's anybody who you worked with who you really kind of disliked personally, and how you dealt with that. If there was an instance of that. That that's a great question um, because no, I kind of feel like the diaries, especially one of the limitations of this kind of story, I think, is that at least um, to a certain to. Uh, up to a certain point recently, I thought that you can't really do a diary of someone you don't like. I certainly felt you can do a story about someone you don't like, but the diaries really, they're the character and they're pulling you through and there needs to be some level of empathy, I think. Certainly for me as a producer working with them. Um, and I came with the prison diaries piece that kind of came up. I, I mean, there were some people that, uh, maybe I liked, but that the audience wasn't going to like. And, um, and that was important, you know, that, um, they weren't kind of empathetic figures, sympathetic figures. Um, so I don't know. I think that that is, that's a big problem. I think it's really hard to work this way with unappealing people. And Josh is unappealing in his own particular way, but ultimately he's very appealing, um, cause he's so honest and, and unique. Um, so I don't know. I think, I don't, I don't know if it does work. Have you done this? 
Yeah, and I, I don't like it as much. I mean, we, I did a, a whole story of diaries in a retirement home. Actually, uh, it was on BEZ originally, and it was a, a, di- a retirement home in Evanston. And I had to supplement it with interviews. And actually, that was also the case with the Prison Diaries piece we did with a correctional officer story. That was diaries, but I, we had to supplement it with interviews, which I don't do almost never do with the teenage stories because the adults just, there's some type of tape that it's harder for them to get to. I think the reflective stuff comes more easily if I'm interviewing an adult than it does just sending, you know, I think the other thing is, um, the best thing about doing this thing with teenagers is that they just, they just don't think it's a crazy idea to walk around with a tape recorder. And I think also they feel like, um, what they have to say um, is important on some level. And there's something that happens sometimes with adults that they don't. Um, and plus, the biggest thing is teenagers have a lot of time. <laughs> and so they're, you know, this takes a lot of time. Some, maybe not all teenagers. Um, so they're, they're just more game to do it. So I've done it, but it, it, for some reason, some, you know, it doesn't work as well. I think so. There was one, I did one diary with a 14 year old. Um, but Dave, I say is get a life 101. They were, um, 11 and 12 and that's, you know, one of the best pieces of radio ever. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know. If, I, I think, you know, there is a nice age where people are kind of, you know, just self-conscious enough and, but not too self-conscious and kind of figuring things out and whatever else it is. So, but, you know, 14 to 19 seems to be a good, um, so, let's see. Could do a couple things. Could go on with more questions. I could also, um, I could go to a different person, um, a different diary. Um, I kind of want to, um, since we have like, there are some people new to radio, there are some people who have been doing radio um, twice as long as I have in this room. So, uh, you know, I'd like to kind of make it as interactive and, you know, whatever. You, okay, question in the back. We'll go there. Um, certainly time constraints help to cut it down, cut it down. You know, I mean, basically I work all these pieces air and all things considered, and you've got, you've got limits to how long it can be in all things considered. It can either be 22 minutes, which is their version of a half hour. Once you subtract the, subtract the news, um, a lot of the teenage diaries were, um, 13 minutes just because they fit into this 13 minute window that they also have. So it's really kind of an arbitrary, um, but you know, 13 minutes ends up being a pretty good amount of time for a lot of these. So the prison diaries were half hour, i.e. 22 minute documentaries. No, every, everyone, I wish it was three minutes extra, three minutes longer. But, um, you know, my editor's better at this than I am. She kind of helps me kind of push, push, push. I don't know if Deborah George is here, but, um, she's really, she's harsh and she makes me kind of cut it down. And it's always better for it. Like how to make it 
Yeah, I mean, just because I think that for the diaries anyway, I mean, the personal stories work better. You know, if they're telling a story about their life, you know, it's about their life and that, and they're the person to tell that story. Um, there are plenty of amazing examples of using, um, you know, inexperienced report, you know, either young people or, um, real people as in not radio producers to tell stories and they're not necessarily personal stories. They can be journalistic stories of some sort. I just think, I like the idea of if, if someone's going to do a story, uh, you know, a diary story, it should be about them and it should be as personal as possible. And what do they have to bring to it and that kind of thing. Seth, do you want to continue your question? Because I may have forgotten what, what you were really asking. Right. Well, this... The Teen Reporter Handbook, it's not really just about diaries. It's also kind of tips for just general reporting, things like, um, you know, go, going into interview situations for people who haven't done it before, like kind of, you know, how, how it's so important to kind of put people at ease and what you want to do with your equipment and kind of. So um, if anyone doesn't have a copy of this, come see me and, I can, and, I, and I'll get you a copy. But, you know, it's kind of just, I, I don't know. I don't, that's all I got. areas of invasion of privacy, even if the informant is willing to exhibit their disease or their trouble or whatever. It's like we all condemn local television journalists for sticking a microphone in somebody's face and says, tell me, Mrs. Blotz, how does it feel to lose your entire family? And they're supposed to cry. It's the Oprah effect. And where does, where's the line between what we do, which is sensitive and lengthy and informed by uh, humanism and so forth. Where's the line between that and what Oprah does, or even the people who are worse than Oprah on television, where essentially there's a whole new modality, it's not so new anymore, of people telling horrible stories about what happens to them sexually or some other way, or being battered or whatever. And then everybody has a good cry, and then the world goes on the same. I, I mean, I've faced this a lot when I, I went to a dwarf convention in 1973 and interviewed for three days and interviewed dwarfs and talked about, asked them about their sex lives and about discrimination and interdwarf discrimination, all kinds of stuff. And it turned out very well, but I also felt a little weird, you know, probing into people's lives. And they knew they were going to be on the radio and it was all legal and everything like that. But uh, if so, or what happens if somebody admits in one of your diaries to committing a crime, whether it's smoking dope or stealing something or worse, how do you how do you deal with the ethic of having people expose themselves on the radio for the sake of art or journalism, but still, you know, telling disturbing stories? Well, as far as the diarists themselves, did everyone hear that, that question? Um, as far as the diarists themselves, I mean, you know, especially if you're dealing with someone under 18, there's a bit of a high bar of responsibility in terms of, you know, but you're just kind of very clear to them and to their parents, um, what the process is, what's going on, what's going to be in it. And, and, and that's the most important part. Again, as I said before, that, you know, you let them know everything that's going in the story and you give them an opportunity to say, um, I don't want that in the story. And that's happened before. There was, um, you know, one story about a kid who, um, who's basically about his depression 
And he and his parents didn't want the fact that uh, he was actually going to see a doctor and getting medication, even though that was kind of really vital in the kind of the narrative of the story that was a really important moment. But, you know, they didn't want that in and didn't get in. And there are plenty of things that don't affect the story. Josh, every week, he would say, oh, that girl that I mentioned, don't put her in the story. And then a week later, it's like, okay, you can put her back in the story. Um, but, you know, so that's protecting the diarist himself. As far as, um, you know, sort of the, you know, Oprah diaries and NPR diaries and whatever else, I mean, I think you can't make blanket judgments about any style of of journalism or documentary. It's just, it's the end product, and everything gets judged in the end, whether it's um, it's valuable and not valuable or, you know, um, well, voyeuristic or not, or whatever else. I was focused, my question was focused on the responsibility of the producer to the audience. It's a surrogate for the audience. Is there stuff that, while it may be very powerful, shouldn't be on the radio, even if the speaker is willing to sign a release and say, yeah, you can put it on the radio? I don't know. If it's powerful and valuable, it should go on the radio. I think um, I think uh, my biggest role in in this process, I mean, I'm sort of, they're the reporter, I'm the producer, Although I, I, I'm more like a midwife, really. Um, but I think my role in terms of that is really just bullshit detector, you know. And, you know, choose the, choose the good example, tape, let the other tape if, go. If I say had gotten tape of an actual execution, where you can hear somebody, like an electrocution, which is what he had, but he had somebody describing it, would you put that on the air? Would, that's a rhetorical question, but would, if you could actually hear somebody getting the juice and screaming or whatever, and you could get that tape, would you put it on the air? I don't know. I'm not prepared to go there. um, Should we do more questions or do we listen to another piece? All right. We'll listen to one more thing. Um, I'm winging this. Uh, We've got about 20 minutes, and I want to play one little thing at the end also to give people here an idea of a way that they can work with sound if you're you're just kind of starting out and want to do some little – well, we'll get to there. We'll get to that when we get there. But – this is um, part of the Prison Diaries piece, uh, series, and this is a young girl who, um, who for the Prison Diaries series, we we did um, we worked with people in an adult prison in North Carolina and a juvenile facility in Rhode Island, and again did interviews uh, diaries with correctional officers and a judge, a juvenile court judge, and uh, and inmates. This is a young girl who was imprisoned in a juvenile facility in Rhode Island. She has since gotten out. And uh, I'm just going to play you a few minutes of hers. This is number two, I think, on on that second CD. I was five months pregnant when I went to the training school. Going on six. Hold on. March, April, May, June. Okay. Six, yep. And um, on June 7th, they brought me to the hospital. The baby decided to come the next morning at six. She had these pink lips. And she like she just lay in my arms and I breastfed her. And um and then the staff said, Okay, you have to go now. And they put the cuffs on me. They put me in the van and I left. Hi baby. Today is Sunday. Um, at this moment, we're having visits. Run, run. I'm going to follow you. 
when Rihanna comes to visit, we go straight to my room. Okay, let's play that. My daughter has wicked curly hair. Her eyelashes are long. She has my eyes. They're big and browned. All right. All right, let's play. One. Count them. One, three. Two. Two. Three. While I'm on the training school, my daughter stays with her grandma and her daddy. She knows I'm her mother, but... She looks to her grandmother more than she looks to me when she needs help or anything. I'm just there, sort of like extra. Yeah. Okay, 10 seconds. Okay. Bye, baby. You won't see me for a while. All right, you gonna behave? Miss you. You be having right and you stop being spoiled. Okay, um I saved a few um newspaper clips about my crime. The headline says, um, thirteen year old girl gets attacked in front of Nathaniel Green Middle School with a razor blade. I was 15 years old. It was 1996. And my sister kept telling me that this girl was bothering her. And then she came home one day um, with scratches. She had a scratch in her face and, and I got real mad. And I decided I was going to take action. I walked to Nathaniel Green Middle School. I had the razor in my hand, and I was like, I was like, which one's the girl? So like, she was like, see the girl with the book bag. And I ran and stepped right in front of her, and we started arguing. She said, I'm not scared of you. Leave me the fuck alone. And I just started hitting her. I remember I had the razor in my in my hand, and I just, I grabbed her hair, and I just pulled her face to the side and started cutting her. The first slide just went down. Um, I don't remember how many cuts she had. Well, I know that um, her nose almost came off. I mean, this girl, her face was so cut up that her skin had to be held together because it was just falling apart. But thanks to God, she's fine now. Physically, I mean. I don't know mentally. I mean, I know... Pause it or just stop it? Yeah, yeah. Keep, I think it's just a few more seconds. Oh, I know why I did it. I know what was going through my head then. But it just doesn't make sense today. It just, it just doesn't make sense. So Christelle's story, um, she, uh, she, that was 
her crime is basically considered um, about the most brutal crime Rhode Island has ever had from a young girl. Um, so she was in prison for six years, but she ended up doing so well um, at, the, at the Rhode Island Training School where she was incarcerated that they ended up, the judge let her out after three and a half years. And um, she's been out. She had another kid right when she got out, so she's, she's, uh, she's got uh, two kids now, and she's doing pretty well. But I think getting back to uh, the earlier question about kind of working with people who you don't like, I mean, certainly, I, you know, I love uh, Christelle after, you know, kind of working with her for a long time. And I think she's amazing. But in terms of the way the audience responded to this story, it was kind of fascinating. It really kind of split half and half between people. What you're not hearing is sort of the evidence over the second half of the piece about her transformation. But even with that, I think once people hear that crime, um, half the audience wasn't able to get past that. Once you hear the razor blade, and um, no matter what else you hear, I think a lot of people just aren't prepared to kind of you know, move on from, from there. So it was kind of interesting as far as the kind of response we got. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a good question because I, I played with that story just from a structure point of view. Where do you put that story? What follows that story? Where, where can you go after that story? Yeah. So that was a problem. I, it were, we've tried it in many different places. I don't know. To approaching parents, I've I have no hints about approaching parents. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's really important. Josh's mom was very involved in her story, as I kind of described. But it's really important to have. I mean, I can't have a relationship through the parents. It has to be very much through, you know through the kids. And if, if you're looking for something, you know, it there's a a balancing act there, especially if you feel like you're getting information from the that the parents don't know. I had actually, there was one story I never did as a diary, but I, was, I had been interviewing this girl, and her mom had been a teen mom and had to have her, and um, she had begun having sex as a, as a 12-year-old, and she, I was getting information from the mother and the kid that neither of them knew about, and, it, and I, you know, I never kind of did anything with that, and it was just really weird. So we have, um, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes left, and I want to, again, kind of redirect a little bit toward um, uh, the folks of you who are just starting to do stories and maybe are interested in doing your own diary or maybe producing other people's diaries or not having anything to do with diaries at all but just kind of doing um, journalistic stories or documentaries of some sort. To get an idea of what sort of things you're working on, um, I have one little other little thing to, to play that, for me as a model of like a kind of story to go out and, and do as, as a kind of a simple exercise. Um, do you have any questions first from you guys, from the high school students among you? What was your favorite diary that you did and what was the hardest to do? Definitely among them were Josh. I mean, 
Josh, again, the hardest because it took so long for him to say anything that felt like he was really being honest and vulnerable. Um, and it's, it, I think it's definitely, if not my favorite, among my favorites. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it takes, again, I mean, some of the diaries I've worked, um, they've recorded for just a couple months. Some, like Josh, have been a year. And Josh, again, still had his tape recorder, so he did a second story. Um, and Christelle still has her tape recorder as well. So a lot of times we try to kind of keep them going. And maybe a story happens, maybe it doesn't. Um, but, yeah, the, you know, it's like a – actually, I was just reading this Thomas Edison quote where he said, to invent, you need imagination and a pile of junk. And, you know, so you're collecting this pile of junk, and it takes a long time to go through the pile of junk and kind of weed out for the good stuff and make the good stuff into to something. So I'm doing a piece right now where I'm writing. I'm not doing a diary, and it's and it's a relief. It's so much fun, and it's so much easier. Usually I find the opposite, that, you know, the writing stuff makes them kind of stiff and all that, and that it's, you know, that's that's what's, you know, the magic of this sort of audio diary, literally. Um, but certainly some of them, you know, not really, like, to, you know, have them write something that then gets read, but to use as little um, artifacts, you know, little clips from their diary. I mean, anything, this is just general reporting stuff, anything you can do to get people active in doing something in the tape is is better whether it's looking at photographs or going through their old diary or reading scraps of things or going through the new you know Christelle's story right there it starts with let's see here I have my old clippings and you know it didn't have to start that way but all of a sudden you're kind of there it places you a little bit so those kind of devices can be good as far as um, you know your mind's eye can just kind of you know picturing um, I wanted to play one other thing this is the, the, the tooth this is um and Jay, I may get you to talk about Transom also for a minute, but this is actually a, a short little Jay Allison piece. I don't think he knows that I'm going to play this, but um, but I love this as an example of you know, radio essentially is a lot of radio is just I saw this really cool thing, I've got I've got to, I've got to tell you guys about it, you know. And this is um, and I think that especially if you're looking for ways to just kind of play around and do stories and. That's the kind of simplest way to think about it, is find someone great and interesting or something great and interesting and set it up and let it go. And this is a story that does that, and, um, and I, I just like it as a, as a model for kind of thinking about a way to, to do your own story that way. This is a, go ahead. When I first met Michael Moss, we were in the YMCA in Kingston, New York, and we'd been playing a pickup game of basketball together. We were on the same team. And in the locker room afterwards, I said, hey, nice game. And he said, yeah, that was a good run. And then he paused and he said, hey, have you ever heard anyone play their teeth before? Okay, Johnny comes marching home. I open my mouth and uh, my teeth are showing. And I just take my fingertips and the nails on my fingertips and I strum. I didn't use any of my bottom teeth. It's just my top.
half front teeth. It's like my front four. I really like playing Hava Nagila. I play that at bar mitzvahs and that really gets them hitting the tables. Well, it happened when I was 13 years old in bed. For two years, I was lying in bed. I just, through fierce practicing and determination, I gave my teeth this one almost nonchalant strum in, like, dejection. I just said, I can't do it. And I just did it, and I was elated. Jumped up out of bed and I just started playing all night. I just couldn't stop. It was the one tune, the Lone Ranger, but it was worth everything. <laughs> A group of people that looks kind of like they're having fun. Anybody, I just some reason, I, I just get the the impulse of the notion to start playing my teeth for them. I don't I just, I just go. The response is always happy, happy and like, wow, I enjoy that. I never knew somebody could play their teeth before. So melodically. <laughs> I do brush my teeth twice a day, and uh, I care about my smile. So, for those of you who got a copy of the handbook, it has um, some resources in the back, which you may have noticed, and it has web resources, but it was published about a year ago before uh, transom.org started. So you should take a pen and just write somewhere in the book, um, transom, T-R-A-N-S-O-M dot org, www, um, because it's really a, a wonderful site to check out if you're interested in, in radio and listening and talking about radio and, and a whole bunch of resources. And Jay, do you want to give a little description of it? Uh, transom.org. So anyway, for those of us who've been in radio for a while, and you know, public radio especially can seem like a, uh, a you know, a place filled with a lot of old folks, and the doors kind of don't open so easily. It's um, it you know, events like these are really important to to, you know, to kind of see how many young people are uh, are banging at the door, and and you know, we can push a little harder and let a lot more people in to do radio in whatever way they can. So it's great to see all you guys here. Thank you very much.